This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, welcome to Something Rhymes With Purple. I almost said something there. Welcome to Something Rhymes With Purple. This is actually the podcast all about words and language presented by me, Susie Dent, and Giles Brandreth sitting opposite me on my Zoom screen. Um, Hello, Giles. Good to be with you. I'm in such happy form because I've spent some time this week in a variety of art galleries. I love an art gallery. And this month, July, the month we're recording this in, in 2022, it's the 125th anniversary of the Tate Britain, which is one of the UK's most established art galleries. Well, originally called simply the Tate Gallery, uh, named after Tate, as in Tate and Lyle, the mighty sugar refiners. Anyway, today we're going to devote our podcast to the world of art. And the Tate houses all forms of art. But we're going to focus more on painting today because we can cover other areas maybe in later episodes. And I have in my time visited Tate Britain, which was the original Tate Gallery, Tate Modern, Tate Liverpool, Tate St. Ives. Tate St. Ives. And it all is named after Henry Tate, who donated the original building and lent his own personal collection. And Tate Britain, as we now think of it, but it was then the Tate Gallery, first opens its doors back in 1897 with a small collection of British artwork. And I love British art. I love international art. I just love art. Do you love, before we get into the the words and language of art, do you enjoy art? I do enjoy art. I made a pact with myself when I started to write books. And as you know, a lot of my books have been quite little. But I just thought whenever I write something, I'm going to treat myself to a painting. And it might be really small, it might be really inexpensive, or it might be something that I have really, really wanted to save up for for a very long time. So for every book that I've written, I've bought a painting. So I can look at the the pictures on my wall and think, oh yeah, that's from that's from then. Can I say it's a fabulous idea? It's a wonderful way of of remembering something. I think it's a great idea. People listening might, you know, any moment in your life that you want mm. to remember, and then you've got the painting up there, and it triggers the memory instantly. Fantastic. Exactly. Yeah, just a certain time, and uh, you know what you were sort of experiencing at, at that moment. So the most recent work that I bought was from now he's this absolutely brilliant painter called Jack Coulter who's in his 20s and he has something called synesthesia and synesthesia is when you experience 
senses in different ways to other people. So, for example, colours might present themselves as sounds or music, particularly for Jack, presents itself as colours for him. So he paints colours as he listens to music. And they're absolutely wonderful paintings. So my most recent one came from him. So, yeah, I do love art. It's a very personal thing to me. I wouldn't say that I know huge amounts about the history of art, but I love the subject. And and I love the take too. And I love St Ives because another passion of mine is pottery. And I was introduced to the Bernard Leach School of Pottery, you know, very famously ages ago and went to St Ives to see all his wonderful collection there. So, yeah, that's quite a special one. Well, let's celebrate art. Let's begin by looking at the word art, A-R-T. Where does that come from? Short, sweet, simple? Short, sweet, simple. And if in doubt, where would you say that most of our, well, not most of our words, but a lot of our words, particularly when it comes to the kind of... The well, I'm of, going to go back to the Roman world. I'm going to go yes, to Latin. Exactly. And it's ars, simply A-R-S. And you had the ars musica, which was music. And you had, you know, it separated the various branches of art into different things. But that's where it comes from. And uh, if you remember from one of our recent podcast episodes, museum goes back to a building that was dedicated to the muses, those who were thought to inspire the goddesses, who thought to inspire, you know, all those different branches of art. Well, the Tate Gallery is a gallery because what's a gallery? Where does that come yeah, from? Yeah, well, that is actually this time I- Italian, although ultimately, again, as you would expect, that goes back to uh, to the Romans. But we got it from Galleria, which goes back to Italian. And the idea, I think, is if you, we still use a gallery, well, in TV and radio, the gallery is where the directors and the producers sit, and quite often they are high up, literally situated on a gallery. So that was one of its earliest meanings, but really... In particularly in Italian, it was a covered space for walking in and it was sort of open at the side and then had the roof supported by pillars. So it was a bit like a kind of piazza, if you like. And then it became that long, narrow balcony. And then it became something where, you know, it was somewhere where people would walk around and then obviously look at things around them. So it's all, all to do with gazing in awe, really. My feet always get terribly tired in a gallery. I can walk for miles along the street, but going around a gallery, within minutes I'm having to sit down. It's extraordinary. Maybe you don't get tired in galleries. But that's the loveliest thing, is just sitting down right in front of a painting, isn't it? And then just, you know, having the chance to literally stare for ages. You're you're right about that. Yeah. I was going to be a philistine for a moment and say that, for me, the first thing I need about an art gallery is to know that it's got a good coffee shop, because I want to sit Uh, down in front of the cupcake and the cup of tea. But you're right. (laughs) Sitting down in front of a painting is wonderful. I went to see a famous painting called The Blue Boy, which was briefly back in Britain. Do you know this painting by Gainsborough of a boy dressed in blue clothes? And it was sold 100 years ago to an American art dealer. And it came back briefly to the National Gallery just for a short while, painting mm. by Thomas Gainsborough. And I went and sat there, and I did just sit there looking at this painting, knowing that it was only going to be here for a few weeks. It's gone now. It's now gone back to America. It's at the Huntington in San Marino, California. So ah. if you're listening to this in California, I think they're going to have it back there soon. Anyway, it was just a fantastic painting, just looking at it. The colours, beautiful. Yeah. Do you remember the very first exhibition you ever went to? Oh, I don't think I do. No. Do you remember yours? Well, I remember the one that made the most impact. It was when I was a student and went travelling with a friend of mine from university and we did the whole, you know, Euro 
train bit, which was lovely. And we went to Venice and there they had the Biennale, the mm-hmm. art exhibition. And Howard Hodgkin was our representative that year, the representative from Britain. And that's when I, I just, his colours are just phenomenal and so vibrant. And that was when I think I fell in love with the idea of looking at paintings. Biennale is an Italian word meaning every other year or something like biannual, that? Biannual, yes. Bi- yes. Biannual, as yes. opposed to, bi- what's if, if it's twice a year, what twice is it? Twice yearly, I know. That's the thing. It can mean both. Oh, really? I hate that word. <laughs> yes. Oh, how annoying. Biannual it, can mean both twice a year and every other year. Yeah, it's very annoying. How intriguing. Well, the Biennale is an exhibition. Exhibition, mm. that's again Latin in origin. Ex meaning out of, hibition. How does that... The, the hibberate meaning, it's exhibere in Latin, was to hold out as if you were kind of holding something out in display. So that is simply where that came from. Good. We're going to stick, because it's such a big subject, let's just stick to painters and paint. Okay. Where, where does paint come from, actually? I'm going to, at some point, find a word that comes from somewhere other than Latin and French, French being the normal root. But no, this one comes from pingere, the Latin, meaning to paint. And then, of course, it went into French as peindre or peint, P-E-I-N-T, a pen, pen, I can't pronounce my French now, peint, meaning painted, and then came into English from there. So, yeah, same root, I'm afraid. Well, take us through some of the painting techniques that we're familiar with. Fresco, talking about uh, Italy going to Venice. Not that there are, well, I suppose there will be frescoes in some of those churches in Venice, won't there? What is a fresco? Uh, Yes, frescoes. Well, if you've been to the San Scriveni Chapel in Padua, where they have those beautiful Giotto frescoes, I think that's the first Ah. time I saw a fresco that just I found really overwhelming and beautiful. And it simply means cool or fresh. So when you have a picnic, al fresco, obviously, you're outside, as opposed to al desco when you're having a working lunch. (laughs) But it comes from the Italian affresco, meaning on the fresh. So, of course, it's fresh plaster that is applied in a fresco. That is as simple as it gets. If anyone does want to go to Padua, I highly recommend that chapel. It's just so beautiful. But, yes, that is fresco. There is also impasto which is the technique of laying on paint really thickly so it stands out from the surface. And I mentioned Jack Coulter, he does that sometimes a lot of, I think Van Gogh did that too, didn't he? It kind of stands out in pasto. So that comes from Italian. In pasto sounds like the lovely lunch I'm going to have after I've been round these churches of yours in Padua. I do love it. I'm thinking, I mean, it shows what a Philistine I am. I'm, I'm suddenly thinking of one of my best meals ever was in Verona. I'd been oh. to the arena in Verona. I don't think remember seeing any particular art there, but I do remember going up the following day and having lunch up on a hillside, the most fabulous pasta I've ever enjoyed. Really? <gasps> oh, gosh, that was happiness. But that's pasta as like, opposed well, to Go and have a look pasta. at some Van Gogh paintings somewhere and then go and have some pasta because I think he did almost pioneered the use of impasto in painting. So it was these beautiful textured surfaces so you can see the paint protruding from the canvas, but also adds kind of movement. It's really incredible. And these are Italian words because these were Italian Renaissance techniques and we've inherited the words from going back there, like chiaroscuro. That's yes. another word. I don't know what that means, but I've heard people use that it. That means light and dark. So that's the treatment of light and, and shade in paintings. It's sort of the contrast between light and shadow, which is quite a, you know, a sort of special effect, if you like. Have you ever had a portrait painted of you? 
I've had a number of portraits painted Have of you? me. Most recently by a wonderful artist called Anthony Williams. Anthony hmm. spelt without an H, Williams. I'm saying his name carefully because people can look up his work online. He's probably best known for having done a portrait of the Queen that was criticised at the time because it was said that he'd made her fingers look like sausages. Um, <laughs> but he does his work in something called egg tempura. Have you heard of this technique? Oh, yes, it, I have. Um, Does it smell, is what I want to know. No, of rotten eggs. Okay. No, it doesn't smell at all. It, okay. He mixes the oil. I mean, he uses, instead of oil, I think, with the paint, egg yolk. And it requires, he has to be very fastidious, and requires a great deal of time. Yeah. But he likes to use it because I think it means that he can be more precise, more accurate. Egg tempura. Do you know why it's so called? I mean, is there a dictionary definition of that? Yeah, so I'm just thinking that tempura probably isn't linked to the Japanese tempura, I would imagine, because that's fried in batter, isn't it? Yeah, we're back to food, (laughs) from impasto to pasta, from egg tempura to, Um, yes. So I genuinely don't know, because I think, although that's Japanese, I think that goes back to Portuguese, meaning seasoning. So um, let's have a look. Look up egg tempura. It's it's a it's a fascinating technique and it, oh it's tempera not tempura ah explain to me what tempera means it's basically a method whereby pigments are mixed in an emulsion with water and other things such as egg yolk and used them for very fine painting apparently mostly on wood panels um, around the 12th century onwards and it goes back to the Italian to paint in distemper. So that's where the tempera uh, comes from. And distemper is actually not the distemper that you find if something is in conflict or there's a ballyhoo or sort of upheaval. It comes from the Latin distempere or distemperare. I'm doing it with Italian accent there, to soak. So it's the idea of steeping this paint and steeping the egg yolk with the paint to produce this effect. Very good. So his paintings I do recommend. Another artist whose work I think is wonderful is somebody called Anthony Palliser, P-A-L-L-I-S-E-R. He's a Paris-based artist. Look him up again online. He painted a picture of me a few years ago. He is wonderful. John Bratby also painted a picture of me. He was known as belonging to the kitchen sink school of artists in the 1950s. And uh, he was a most unusual character. Um, great fun. And in the 1960s and 70s, he used to write to anybody whose name he found in Who's Who or in the TV Times saying, I'm a great collector of the original, and I feel you are an original personality. Will you come and be painted by me? And he would invite you to his house, which was called the Cupola and Tower of the Winds in Hastings, where his wife would offer you a bacon sandwich on the side, and he, in a couple of hours, would paint in very vivid colours because he made it clear that your face is full of green and blue and yellow and orange and red, as well as the colours you think are there. He would paint this arresting picture of you, and then he would offer it to you. He didn't have to buy it, and I didn't buy mine, although I would have liked to have bought the painting he did of Kenneth Williams, which is a wonderful painting. And he did some fantastic paintings of Venice as well. Mm. He's not very fashionable now, but he had a big retrospective at the National Portrait Gallery not long before he died. So John Bratby. Do you like them, Mr. Key thing? Or are you a bit like um, Churchill was towards Graham Sutherland's portrait? Oh, yes, famously. Graham Sutherland's portrait of Winston Churchill. I think it's lovely. I think it's it's completely remarkable. Yeah. It echoes his portrait, which is still existing, of Somerset Maugham, 
The Novelist, which is a most arresting painting. But Churchill famously didn't like it. No. And said and it was uh, when, burnt, it, wasn't when it? it was unveiled, yes, that it was a, a most interesting example of modern art. And his wife, Clementine, knew how much he hated it. And I think she ordered its destruction, which really was a criminal act of vandalism. Yeah, did he not like it because he thought it wasn't flattering enough or just because he didn't like the style? Well, I think he didn't like the style, but I think he thought it made him look like an old man. Oh, I, I disagree. I think it's I think it's incredible. An old man, as he said, straining, as it were, as though he were on the lavatory. He just really hated uh, it. Okay. And, but I think at the time... I think he looks quite pensive. It, it's fantastic. Mm. And, he, of course, he was an old man. He was a prime minister in his 80s still, and he had strokes and still continued. And I think it was because it was so sensitive to him that, yeah. that he didn't like it. And... I admire the techniques of the various paintings that have been done of me, and I've been caricatured as well by different artists like Gerald Scarf. And indeed, I have, but I didn't buy my spitting image puppet. I did something last year for Sky Arts, Portrait Painter of the Year. And three people painted a picture of me, and the one I chose is the one I liked the most. In fact, I liked it the least, but I felt it was the most effective. Looked like a painting of how I see myself 20 years from now when I'm at death's door. (laughs) But clearly, that was how the artist saw me on the day. So actually, having your painting, having your portrait painted... Don't do it unless you're no. ready for the consequences. That's where we get warts and all, isn't it? Do you remember? Cromwell. Uh, remind me, it's a painting of Oliver Cromwell? Who did you yeah, say Oliver that Cromwell to? Yeah, Oliver Cromwell said to John Lely, his portrait painter, I can't remember his exact words, but essentially he told him to include all warts and all pimples, etc. And he didn't want any of the sort of what he saw as newfangled flattery. But in fact, you know, we're still doing it now, aren't we? Uh, but yeah, so that's where we get warts and all from. Let's take a quick break. And then I want to hear about the words that the artists are using, the easel, the canvas, the palette, you know, the paintbrush. Well, that's an obvious one. But all the others, let's explore those in a moment. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is Something Rhymes with Purple. We're in the world of art. We're with painters today. They paint with a canvas on an easel. Where does the word canvas come from? Well, believe it or not, it is a relative of cannabis because you make canvas out of its fibres. Canvas has had a really strange journey, actually, because, you know, we also politically canvas, don't we? But if you look at canvas as a verb, going back to the 1500s, it meant to toss someone in a canvas sheet as a punishment or as part of a game. So you would literally, you'd have lots of people holding the edges of this canvas but almost like a tarpaulin, and tossing people up into the air, which I imagine was a little bit uh, uncomfortable. Anyway, so then canvas came to mean to beat or to criticise severely. 
that then weakened again to mean discussing an issue, then to proposing something for discussion. And when you canvass for votes at an election, you're kind of seeking opinion, but also seeking support. So it's had a really, really strange journey. But the canvas that, you know, the artists paint upon does go back to the cannabis plant and the idea of, you know, the, the fabric that it produces. Very good. Well, you put your blank canvas onto your easel. Yes. That's the stand on which you stand it sometimes if you're an mm. artist. Easel? What's the origin of that? I like that because it goes back to um, the Dutch easel and the German easel, both of which mean a donkey. Uh, oh. So it came into English <laughs> in the 1630s. But, you know, we talk about a clothes horse. It's a similar idea. It's a kind of load-bearing object, if you like, that becomes a beast of burden. And on his or her hand, the artist might hold a palette on which they mix their paints. Palette, yeah. I'm reckoning, is going to be related to plate in some way, uh, is it? No. no? Oh. No, it actually goes back to the Latin pala, meaning a spade. And I think it's oh. because of the shape of the palette originally looked like the end of a spade, if you like, the shovel bit at the end. So that is where we get the artist's palette. It's also where we get the pallets that are unloaded, by the way, in and out of containers and warehouses. Um, but the palette of the mouth simply goes back to the Latin palatum, meaning the roof of a mouth. Very good. My cat's and just walked in if you want to hear some meowing. Well, well, I like to hear some meowing. <laughs> um, I've got a lovely painting of our cat, Nala. Uh, oh, no, it's not Nala. It's our previous cat, Jack. Jack was painted by the comedian Jack Whitehall when he was a boy. Oh. You know, very gifted people often have lots of different gifts, and, and yeah. Jack is very gifted. And we've known him since, in fact, before he was born, because we're friends of his parents. Mm. And Jack, when he was about 15, was doing a lot of painting. And my wife said, would you paint our, we've got a cat called Jack, would you paint it? And so he painted a really fine picture, actually. Amazing. I love cat paintings. Um, L.S. Lowry famous artist, painted some wonderful pictures of animals. Did he? I don't including, think yes, I mean, we think of him doing those stick men. Yeah. But often if you look at the, if you look in detail at those paintings, often there are dogs and cats walking about the streets yeah. as well. And he did some individual paintings of animals too. Anyway, that's by the by. Uh, do you like a picture to be framed? Uh, most artists do, I think. They somehow, well, a frame actually can do something for a picture. Um, yeah, no, they definitely can. Do I like frames? Sometimes I do. Sometimes I don't. It depends. I think for modern art, frame sometimes just doesn't look right. And so you just leave it on the canvas. Whereas I am looking at a painting by someone called John Lowry Morrison, who is a Scottish painter who paints in the Scottish islands. Beautiful, quite Van Gogh-like, actually. And I've got one just in the study where I'm here now with a kind of gold frame, which sets it off beautifully because it's the moon upon the water. So I think it can do a lot. Yes. Oh, uh, Scottish painters, I am particularly fond of the Scottish colourists. I'm wanting to send people off from this podcast to begin Googling and to uh, think, oh, yes, they mentioned all these people. The Scottish colourists, you probably know their work. What are their names? Wallow, I know, is one. Caddle is another. Hunter. Peplo. Peplo, Hunter, okay. Caddle. If you don't know their work, the colour is Ferguson. just... Yeah. Ferguson. They are great Oh, I love it. Whenever I go to the Edinburgh Fringe, which I sometimes do in August, I may be mm. popping up there this August, but I will be perhaps performing there next year. For me, the great treat is going to the art galleries in Edinburgh. Oh, they and are beautiful. Sitting, I'm looking at them now. Yeah. Peplo. Yeah, gorgeous. Uh, uh, Peplo, extraordinary. A lot of still yeah. lifes, but with colours that are so bright, translucent, fantastic. Yeah. So, very good. Really beautiful. Just before we go, if you are leaving 
the Tate Gallery, or indeed any gallery at all, mm. what is the painting going to take with you, Susie? This is it. The <sighs> National Gallery is burning down, and yeah. you are going to take a painting. Which painting? All the art galleries of the world are burning down. Which painting are you going to take? to keep safe. Oh, that is so hard. I'm going to go for Whistler's mother. Oh, what an interesting choice. In I love that. I love Whistler. I think Whistler is gorgeous. I love all his nocturne paintings. But I could stare for for hours at, at his mum in that picture. I think it's it's wonderful. If you gave me another five minutes, I'd probably come up with a completely different answer. But I do love Whistler. How about you? Well, I'm going to choose, rather quaintly, John Singer Sargent. A painting uh, by, by Sargent, because the same sort of, it echoes a little bit that Whistler world. You took me down that that sort of alleyway. But yeah. when Bernard Shaw was asked if the National Gallery was burning down, which painting he'd take with him, he said, the one nearest the door. And that's the sensible <laughs> answer, isn't it? It is a sensible option, yeah, definitely. If you've got any questions about the world of art, you want to recommend a an artist perhaps from your country, that you feel deserves to be better known outside your country. I've talked about a lot of British artists, not necessarily very famous ones in the people I've talked about. Why not share with us those names and spread the word, spread the art love? Yes, let us know, because I've just looked up how much Peplo, a Peplo beautiful still life went for at Sotheby's recently, and I think I've got to write about a million books until I get there. £315,000. Yeah, and that's, I think, that's a cheap one. Is it? Um, yeah. Oh. <sighs> well, well anyway, if in doubt, what I'm doing now is. Have. I, yes, I'm no longer buying paintings. I'm painting them. <gasps> Good I've, for you. I've started painting pictures. Oh, yeah. could you do my portrait? Because I've I've never ever wanted to have one, but I think under your kind <laughs> <laughs> your kind brush. Do you brush? What do you what do you use? Or is it very, so abstract that I'll look like I, someone I, for Dali painting? <laughs> Uh, I'll give you a go. I'll give it a go, painting a portrait of you. That would okay. be a, quite a I challenge. I don't mind a Lowry matchstick person. That would be good. I do look like a matchstick, so that's okay. That would be, I'll paint you as a Lowry matchstick girl. Yeah, okay. that'd be lovely. Good. Perfect. All right, you're, you're on. on. Do you know what? We've had some correspondence this week that set me off in all sorts of directions. So I have to um, say thank you to Paul Hyder and Hannah Coates. But first to Paul, who asked me a question again that I had not really considered, but it's a nice one. Hello, Susie and Giles. My name's Paul Hyder. I'm an English teacher in southwest China. So thank you for your podcast, which regularly keeps my vocabulary up to date. I'd like to ask you about the word honcho, as in the head honcho, the leader of a company or something. It's a strange word and, and it sounds a little bit oriental to me. I don't know. Maybe you could shed some light on it for me. Thank you very much. Take care. Sai Jian. <laughs> Very good. That's great, isn't it? And um, it reminded me because I don't, do we ever have honcho without head? I'm not sure we do. I think it's become one of those sort of fossilised words that appears only in certain expressions. Do you remember we talked about things like high dudgeon or spick and span, that kind of thing. Head honcho seems to be another one. But Paul is absolutely spot on. It is a little bit oriental because it comes from the Japanese hanjo, meaning group leader. And that was brought back to uh, North America originally by a serviceman stationed in Japan during the occupation after the Second World War. And then, yes, I came back in the 1940s and then came to Britain too. It's a nice word, honcho. I honcho. want to see a honcho in a poncho. Um, a poncho is a garment, isn't it? That, yes. What does, what does well, that come from? I used to love ponchos. Poncho, I'm it's going to be Spanish, isn't it? And um, I'm looking it up now. South American Spanish and for the same thing, but I don't know what the etymology of that is. 
Okay. Well, look, let's put our coats on. <laughs> Hannah Coates has been in touch. Hi, Susie and Giles. I have a question and a request for you. I was looking for a word that means something that has more impact or is just more than you would expect. I couldn't find a word that means this in the English language, so I came up with one, cucumbian. So you could have a cucumbian date, or it could be a cucumbian storm. The etymology of cucumbian is because for something that's 96% water, a cucumber is a lot harder to snap and actually really hurts if you are hit with one. I would love to know if a word actually exists that means something that has more impact than you would expect. And if it doesn't, I would love for you to tell the word about cucumbian. I'm hoping to get it into the OED. Thanks. Well done, Hannah. Well, she's my kind of palindrome. I love it. What a marvellous word, cucumbian. It's brilliant. Uh, and the whole concept is absolutely brilliant. 96% water, but it hits harder than you would think. And also, uh, there was this famous meme, wasn't there, of cats being absolutely terrified by a cucumber. If you just lay, if you put one um, unsuspectingly near their food bowl, they would absolutely jump a mile. It didn't work on mine, who is currently now, she's just gone into a shopping bag and uh, is trying to do... He's looking for the helix. cucumbers, yes. <laughs> looking for cucumbers. But I love I love what the letter tells us also about uh, Hannah and her life, uh, a cucumbian date. Yes, um, oh, yes. Can you imagine? You can hear her thinking, yeah, well, it turned out to offer more than I expected. Hmm. Um, but the cucumbian storm, too, which was promised and then, oh, hit you with a great impact. It's a lovely yeah. word. It is a great word. Is there an existing word, do you think? I can't better it. I spent a little while on the historical thesaurus looking for words that sort of gave you a bigger hit than you were expecting. And there isn't anything as good as cucumbian. So I think she can have that. And Hannah, now your big mission is to get it used by as many people as possible, not just me and Giles. And then it stands a chance because, as they say, usage is everything. And it has to be in print, doesn't it? Is that still the case? It always was the case. You had to have a written reference for it. Yes, um, but that written reference can come from a transcription of an oral Good. conversation or an oral event or whatever. So as long as it has been written down, it doesn't matter where it originated. Good. Uh, well, and, cucumbian yeah. itself then may turn out to be a word with more clout than we anticipated. Well, exactly. Cucumbian. cucumbian. Have you got a trio of established words that genuinely do exist? and have stood the test of time to share with us this week. Yes, I do. I'm just going to throw an old one into the mix just because I love it and I kind of wish that we were still talking that way. Peradventure mm. is this sort of old way of saying perhaps. So hap used to mean chance or fortune. So if something happened, perhaps it was because fate was either smiling on you or not, but it happened by chance and was decreed by fate. And peradventure has that same idea of you don't know what's coming. It's just, you know, an adventure of of chance and luck, etc. So I love that one. The second one is just quite sweet. Uh, I can apply this to my cat right at this moment in time. Numptious. And numptious means cuddly and delightful. Hmm. Numptious. It's a very nice, word. cosy word. Yes. And can, your, your cat can be numptious. Oh, yes. Mine definitely is numptious. Looking up at me with very big eyes. She's very cute. And then the third one is for anybody who is slightly self-conscious about their feet because they're so big. It's Siapodus. S-C-I-A-P-O-D-O-U-S, and it means having huge feet, named after the Cyapodes, and they were a mythical race of people said to have lived at the southern edge of the ancient Greek and Roman world, and they each had a single leg, and at the end of that leg was a foot of huge, immense size, and they shaded themselves with it from the heat of the sun. 
So if you're a styapodus, I can only hope that your foot is so big that you can use it as a sunshade. Very good. Well, Very surreal, but, but fun. Well, we're in the world of art this week, and by happy chance, I'm going to read you a little... Per adventure. Ah, per adventure, exactly. I'm going to read you a poem that is a bit naptious. Was that, was that the word? Numptious. Numptious. Because yeah. it's, well, parts of it are and parts of it aren't. It's a poem, or I'm going to read part of a poem, by Grace Nichols. Now, do you know Grace Nichols? She was born and educated in Guyana. She moved to Britain in 1977, and she's written widely for adults and for children. I, I went to and had a lovely lunch with her last week with my daughter Afra, and I met up with her and her poet partner, John Agard. And she gave me a, a book which I'm holding in my hands now, called Picasso, I Want My Face Back. I was meeting her because uh, she is featuring in the series that I'm doing with my daughter called the Commonwealth Poetry Podcast, where we, we go to meet people from different countries and find about, about the poetry of that country. And I told her about what we were doing, how we're going to talk about art and, and the Tate Gallery and the anniversary. And she told me that she had been the artist, uh, the poet in residence, at the Tate Gallery, and it had inspired this poem, this series of poems. There's a famous painting by Picasso called Weeping Woman, and the painting, you, you would recognise it. If I held you can see it on screen, Susie. There you are. That's, oh, there's yes. the painting. Yes. You recognise that. Uh, people <laughs> can look it up online. It's a painting by Pablo Picasso based on the face of Dora Maar. And Dora Maar was Picasso's muse and mistress for about 10 years, and uh, she suffered a, um, a mental breakdown when he left her. It was a very intense relationship, and Grace Nichols studied the relationship, studied the painting, and wrote a sequence of poems inspired by it. And I'm just going to read you just part of this in the hope of tempting you all to go out and get a copy of Grace Nichols' book, Picasso, I Want My Face back, published by Blood Axe. But I am famous. People recognize me, despite my fractures. I'm no Mona Lisa, how I'd like to wipe that smugness from her face that still captivates. Doesn't she know that art, great art, needn't be an oil painting? I am a magnet, not devoid of beauty. I am an icon of twentieth-century grief, a symbol of compositional possibilities. My tears are tears of happiness, big rolling diamonds. Wow. And what's fascinating about this poem, the sequence of poems, is that it's taken a poet to give voice to the artist's muse. Mm. And so this is this muse, who is world-famous Dora Maar because of being painted so often by Picasso, actually answering back. And sometimes what she has to say is positive, sometimes it's negative. But it's a new way of looking at a remarkable painting by, indeed, a remarkable painter in Pablo Picasso. I'm going to be saying that to you after you've done my portrait. Giles, can I have my face back? <laughs> <laughs> um, but I can't wait to see what you come up with. I hope we've come up with some goodies for you today. And thank you for uh, listening to us. As always, we really, really appreciate you tuning in week in, week out. It means everything to us. Please keep following us. Please recommend us to friends. But crucially, please do keep getting in touch because we love reading everything you send in uh, via purple at somethingelse.com. And do, of course, consider joining the Purple Plus Club for some bonus episodes on words and language. 
Something Rhymes with Purple is a Something Else production, produced by Lawrence Bassett and Harriet Wells, with additional production from Chris Skinner, Jen Mestry, Jay Beale, and, per adventure, Gully. Gully. What can we say about Gully? It's a term from cricket. There's another episode <laughs> you can hear all about that. <laughs> Definitely our head honcho, if he ever shows up. Yeah, but to see him in a poncho, wow. Wow. <laughs>